What's going on, everyone? You're tuned in to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And today's episode is an exciting one. If you've been on Twitter or read any news about the world of crypto in the last six months, you've probably heard of NFTs or non-fungible tokens. At a basic level, an NFT is a digital asset that links ownership to unique physical or digital items such as works of art, real estate, in-game items, music, or videos. Some of the most popular NFT projects include CryptoPunks, ArtBlocks, BoardApe Yacht Club, and CryptoKitties, with more and more launching every single day. In this episode, we sit down with Roham Gargozlu. He's the founder and CEO of Dapper Labs, the team behind CryptoKitties, Cheese Wizards, NBA Top Shot, Flow Blockchain, and more, and an early pioneer of the NFT movement. Formed in February 2018, Dapper Labs was spun out of Axiom Zen, a venture studio that Roham launched to bring the benefits of decentralization to the first billion consumers through the power of play, fairness, and true ownership. The company recently raised a funding round of $250 million at a $7.6 billion valuation. We covered a ton of topics, including Roham's upbringing and early career, how he fell into crypto and NFTs, why he created CryptoKitties, his vision for the future, and much more. Here we go. First of all, thank thank you guys for for having me. Excited to be on the show. Um, I um, in terms of I guess how was I as a kid? Well, I mean I've been uh, somewhat into technology my whole life. Um, I've been into computers my whole life. Um, my family moved around a lot uh, as as a kid, um, just trying to kind of get us you know better education and, and all these things. So I was born in Iran. Um, <clears throat> family left when I was six. Uh, did elementary school in Dubai, which was an interesting experience, and then um, middle school and, and part of high school in um, in Paris, France, um, where uh, I still I've sort of left a, a piece of my heart in a sense. So, um, kind of always been moving around, and um, the the sort of common thread across it all was was the internet, um, and uh, and and so you you know I was always uh, online in, in some some way. Uh, shape or form yeah and and why did why did your family move around so much i mean did it have to do with like the revolution because my parents are from iran as well i'm armenian but um they're from iran so very familiar with a lot of the stuff that was going on um you know back in the day and so i'm just kind of curious what did it have anything to do with that or was it more like different reasons um no well this was well after the the revolution so i was born in 86 and um and my we left Iran in '91, I believe, um, and so it was. It was you know, revolution was '79. So it was just about kind of trying to get the the you know my brother, sister, and I a better better education, better um, access to opportunity, and um, you know, very very grateful for them because because I think it, it did its job, um, and uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it was a it wasn't as a kid it wasn't always the easiest thing, right? Having to pick up and move every four or five years, but um, overall, I think it gave me a good appreciation for uh, seeing things from different perspectives. Roham, what did your parents do once you guys left Iran? In terms of kind of uh, work, work, work stuff, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my dad has a, um, uh, he's a distributor for uh, uh, refrigerants. So, you know, working with um, uh, basically, you know, basically every air conditioner system you use, every car you drive and, and uh, every fridge in, in everyone's house requires refrigerants to, to run. And he, um, he, he helps distribute them throughout the Middle East and Africa. 
Um, and so that's that's why he wanted to kind of be based out of Dubai. And um, so he works with you know manufacturers like Honeywell and, and others. Um, and, and now they actually have their own uh, sort of manufacturing and, and shipping facilities. But back then it was mainly just um, kind of connecting connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned being like in, interested in technology as a kid. Like, can you share some maybe examples or stories of like, I mean, what, what were you like into computers and programming or, or different stuff? Yeah, I mean, I was I was never a really very good programmer, um, but uh, I, w- I I I kind of was a jack of all trades uh, when I was younger. Um, and the first sort of money I made, I guess, on the internet was building websites that that were kind of informational guides to different um, to different uh, to different subjects. So I literally sat there and I wrote about Dubai. I had a dog at the time, so I I, I felt like I knew a lot about dogs. I wrote about dogs. Uh, I made a site about um, uh, Paris, um, and I would link to different kind of guides and and uh, books and things like that. I think it was the early days of the Amazon affiliates program. Um, and, you know, back then there wasn't a lot of content on the internet. And so anything you sort of put up there and you, you know, added to the right uh, search engines and you sort of, you know, sw- swapped banner ads with the right, uh, the right website, you got a fair amount of traffic and, and that drove a fair amount of affiliate revenue, but kind of being under 18 and, and, you know, based in Dubai and, you know, not uh, not really set up to accept different forms of money. It was it was kind of an early taste of wait a second. Why is it so easy to kind of spin something up, but but actually taking payments is um, really difficult. Accepting, you know, being able to get money that you rightfully earned is really difficult. Um, and uh, and I guess that that sort of seed stayed with me and, and got me got me really excited about crypto the first time um, mm-hmm. I, I heard about Bitcoin. Um, so, so that, you know, I spent a lot of my time kind of just playing around with different things. Um, and, you know, most of the time it, it didn't go anywhere. You know, I, you know, part of the same kind of back then everybody was sort of assembling, uh, their own computers and, and disassembling things and trying to figure out how it works. Um, I guess before kind of everyone had MacBooks that are super locked down. Um, it was a good, 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 uh, good times. So Rahul, I know that you eventually ended up going to Stanford, and from what I can understand, based on what you studied biology, uh, biology and econ, were you on like a med school track who was eventually going to run some sort of hospital, or what was kind of the goal with <laughs> having those two majors? Uh, I was really excited. I mean, I did, I did. That was my dream, like MD PhD. I was really excited about biotech, though. I just saw this kind of intersection between, you know. Um, where where uh, biology well where, what computer science was starting to do and and maybe where biology could be um i was always right. fascinated obviously by the human body i mean it's it's just in general i think it's really important to know how you know how you work kind of thing right on on the inside right um but but that was kind of the the thinking and honestly i mean i was obviously a little naive um or very naive um and uh and i thought i would go get a couple degrees and um and and sort of uh enter that life but uh it was it was not to be i mean the good thing was i got the advice that hey look if you if you think you're interested in something just go try it don't sort of you know spend a bunch of time preparing for it and getting degrees and things um and so you know i was i was lucky enough to land an internship i mean for free um at a at a biotech company and um you know halfway through my stanford career and kind of realized wait a second this 
<clears throat> I mean, it's obviously it's 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 actually incredible, but it, it, it's a different pace. It's different, you know, um, hoops you have to jump through, different kind of um, barriers you have to put up with, and and sort of just just tape you have to cross in a sense. And um, compared to what I was used to in software, and, and maybe what really got me going. Um, it was very different. So that's why I kind of switched gears and, um, you know, didn't, didn't go down the computer science track, but really wanted to kind of get deep into economics. And, you know, actually my econ 101 professor is right now on the board of Dr. Labs. So it was a, it was a good, uh, good kind of, you know, pivot halfway through, um, but ended up completing both, both degrees, which was, um, which, which you know, I think was a good decision. Well- what was it about economics that interested you and what was one of the biggest, you know, learnings or takeaways uh, as a student of econ in college? And, you know, I think a lot of folks that, and the reason I asked this question, you know, I know it's not about crypto or Dapper Labs or anything, and we'll get to that soon. But a lot of the folks that listen to our podcasts are, you know, super young professionals or even college students. Sometimes even, you know, professors play and, you know, tell their students to listen to this podcast in their classes in business school or mm-hmm. law school. You know, it's, it's been really interesting. And so, you know, I'd like for them and the listeners to understand kind of different perspectives and different learnings from different guests that we have. But from an economic standpoint, what was it that was, you know, something that you took away from it? And would you recommend it to folks that are currently in college? Yeah, I mean... Look, I mean, all of these are just tools with which to understand the world, right, or, or lenses through which to understand. Right? Like 2004, the year I went into college, was the year Facebook um, expanded beyond um, Harvard students. And, you know, Stanford was um, the one of the first schools. I think it was first Harvard, then Stanford. And so our, our dorm was called, they're sort of, uh, I remember the, um, the that painted it the face branner it was called branner anyway it was kind of making fun of facebook a little bit or, or introducing facebook to the community and in 2008 when i graduated was when bitcoin was the white paper was written and so you know crypto wasn't a thing during um my my stanford years um but but kind of the concept i guess economics is just you know it's it's the system with which the you know like i was saying it's important to understand how the human body works the whole biology thing I think economics is how society currently functions, right? Both from a um, kind of how things are priced and how goods are delivered and sort of how, you know, things uh, in terms of microeconomic, microeconomics. And then, you know, from a global perspective and, and just, just the tensions between different countries and um, the, a lens through which to really understand what's happening on a day-to-day basis and what happened decades ago, hundreds of years ago. Um, I think I think economics is is just really critical. Now, does that mean you need to go get a degree? I don't I don't, I don't think so necessarily. Um, uh, you know, unless like that that's kind of a deep area of, of focus. But um, but for me, you know, I, I just realized. Look, I I'm always going to look at things from a technical perspective. That's sort of what I almost grew grew up with, right? And and then the biological perspective is just very healthy for life and, and good to kind of understand how you know, the body and, and the mind work. Um, and so what's the, what am I missing? Well, I needed kind of a, a way to understand markets and, um, and sort of the, the business side of things. And I still consider myself more of a product person than, a, than necessarily a business person. Um, but it's been, it's been good to kind of, you know, ha- have multiple lenses with which to, to see the world. And when I mentioned my econ 101 professor, that was actually corporate strategy. So that was all about 
you know, how to understand defensibility and uh, long-term, right. you know, profit margins and things like that. And, you know, back then, I mean, even Hamilton will say he thought that it only applied to bigger companies. Um, but, but I thought, I mean, that, that was the single most sort of defining, uh, uh, uh I don't know, piece of, piece of knowledge or, or whatnot that, that kind of took that, that shaped my startup career. And, and I think eventually not necessarily led to sort of crypto and lives, but, but certainly influenced every decision along the way. Right. So, um, you, you decided, you know, you don't, you didn't necessarily want to go down the sort of MD path, what did you end up doing instead? I think I saw you worked in venture. Is that right? Um, I worked in venture um, as an associate. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to join a. It's, it's a, um, especially back then, it was it wasn't super common for people to go straight into venture um, after college. But I mean, I had some kind of entrepreneurial successes in my belt and, and kind of um, had a, had a little more playing around in, in college as well. Um, and so I went, went, joined the Newbury Ventures team, um, absolutely amazing team, sort of early stage, about $250 million um, under management at the time, um, and, uh, and just helped, uh, helped kind of um, uh, grow the portfolio, helped uh, raise a new fund, uh, make a series of new investments, went kind of uh, very early stage and, and made a, a good amount of sort of seed bets that, that um that ended up working out for for both the team and uh, and everybody involved, and and that's what kind of got me, you know, really comfortable with with that early stage zero to one, and uh, eventually led me to start uh, start Axiom Zen, which which then led to CryptoKitties. So, talk to us about what ended up happening where you decided, you know, you want to start Axiom Zen, which is a, which from what I understand is a venture studio, and what you just said, CryptoKitties was kind of born out of that. What Ultimately, I mean, this was like what 2013 or so, which I think you know at that time, you know, you, you mentioned the the Bitcoin white paper had been out, um, and it was you know that kind of initial kind of Bitcoin people are starting to find out about it. Were you part of that wave, and like, how did you even come across crypto? What inspired you to to start this venture studio, and ultimately, you know, the projects within it? Um. So we started the company uh, in 2012. The first, and, and then Dieter Shirley, who's currently CTO of Dapper Labs, he joined. Um, uh, he joined April of 2013. So, so pretty early in the company's sort of life cycle, and he he started talking about Bitcoin almost immediately. Um, and the reason I kind of got excited um, was less about okay mining it. We never actually ended up mining it, which was probably the, the, a bad decision. But we started playing around with it as. <laughs> What, what, what about what? What if it was kind of a payment method between applications, so that you didn't have to, so that two people could could just pay each other? Um, and in this context, it was uh, actually the first sort of game we, we 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 tried kind of prototyping. Hey, I'll challenge you to a game of Flappy Bird, and um, and you know we'll bet like a Bitcoin, um, just throwing a bucks at the time or, or something like that um, versus each other. And it, it was basically an idea of uh, Bitcoin as an application platform rather than a currency was kind of what got us uh, most excited. Um, but obviously the, the network is what isn't really built for that, even though it's, it's, you know, obviously built for um, a lot more incredible things. So it wasn't until really Ethereum that, you know, we, we started um, uh, pivoting, you know, significant resources into, Hey, what can we, what can we build on top of it? And, you know, Axiom Zen was all about exploring emerging, um, 
a technology. So we were playing around with VR AR at the time. We were one of the first developers on Google Glass. We were some of the first developers on Magic Leap. Um, and we did our own projects, but we also worked with um, bigger companies and you know, folks like CAA, who, who's an investor in Dapper Labs now, um, folks like Plume, who just raised um, $300 million from, from SoftBank. And we kind of helped them em- uh, explore emerging technology. And then we got to kind of um, uh, uh, explore new areas with them. Um, and at the same time, we were kind of, uh, you know, starting to play around with um, Ethereum, the concept of digital ownership, the idea that, wait a second, if all of life is going to be, uh, you know, virtual and mixed reality, who's going to own these assets? And shouldn't a user be able to take things from one experience into the other? And then where's all that information going to live? Wait a second, blockchain is actually a solution for that. Um, and, uh, and, but there's no way to define unique items. And so that's what kind of led to the non-fungible token standard and, um, from, from their, from their crypto kitties. So Roham, just to kind of back it up a little bit, I know you mentioned this and I just want to kind of build off of that, which was, you know, all of, you know, life or all of society, whatever will be digital or virtual reality. I mean, uh, frankly, that's the first time I've heard that, but. Obviously, you're in that world. So I'm curious, where does that come from and what does that mean? Well, I think um, I, I, I should say all of life will be mixed reality. Um, I think virtual reality will still be something that is kind of a almost like going to the movies or, or you know, playing, playing a video game. Um, but, but like you're already seeing it right now where most of our lives are lived through a computer screen. Um, or, or sort of enhanced by um, technology in some way, shape, or form, whether it's you know, calling an Uber or, or whatnot. Um, but sort of in, in terms of interfaces, once you imagine things like you know, Apple uh, glasses or the, the idea that you, know, you can see a digital object in the physical world um, and, and have it even have kind of interactivity, um, then, then the importance of sort of ownership between applications or, or even a... Um, uh, basically a communications layer where all of these things can even talk about, well, who, who owns what, where is everything located um, uh, becomes, becomes kind of the, the next step. So um, it's more just the, you know, as technology becomes more and more seamless, it'll get adopted by more and more people. Um, and, and, you know, you don't have to have it right in your face for it to be part of your daily life. It kind of already is. Right. Rohan, I'm just curious from a personal level, because I know this shows more about the founder hour and it's about you uh, as a founder, as an individual, what are your thoughts about a world in which we are living in more of a mixed reality where digital is almost first virtual is first as opposed to, you know, in person, is that something that you as a person personally enjoy? Is that something that you want to, excuse me, see as what our future becomes or is? Well, look, our motto at Axiom Zen was um, those who can build the future or are building the future have, a, have the power and responsibility to, to shape its impact. And, you know, we don't have the power to stop its impact, right? But we have the ability to shape its impact. And I think, you know, the idea of um, digital becoming more and more a part of people's lives is like, you know, there's certain things that are amazing about that. It brings people together all over the world. It lets people experience things no matter their privilege, right? You don't have to have enough money to travel somewhere. You can simply 
uh, travel there with a click of a button. It equalizes knowledge, right? You don't have to have the best uh, tutors and the best uh, uh, you know knowledge. You can you can look it up at a click of a button. All of these things are incredible, um, but at the same time, you know there's there's potential negatives, and in particular, you know who owns the value that is created. Um, how can you access, um, if you're a creator, how can you access um, your, your fan? If you're a user and you make an investment, um, how, can you, how can you maybe leave that investment or, or sort of exit if you don't agree with um, the, the, the product or the service being um, offered? Are you in control? Do you have transparency? Or are you at the mercy of kind of the people that built that digital world? And the difference between the digital and physical world is no one's established things like, you know, property rights and, and all of these things until blockchain, every piece of software, every digital asset ever um, has been um, under 100% control of um, sort of the developer that, that built that um, product or service. And so, you know, if the world becoming mixed reality means that, you know, certain people become, you know, invincible and become kind of gods in, 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 in whose worlds, you know, everybody else lives in with no power, then I think that's pretty negative. But if mixed reality becomes a way for everybody to have accessibility and ownership and opportunity um, and empowerment, right, be able to create anything and 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 sort of be evaluated on the same uh, merits as anybody else, then I think it's super powerful. Um, and so it's our job as kind of the builders to to sort of nudge things in you know one direction versus the other, um, and that's 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 frankly what gets us going. Yeah. So you mentioned CryptoKitties, which is, is obviously like um, a project out of Dapper Labs. And, and I think one of the first and like large NFT projects like that, at least I know of. And so and this was like, what, 2017 ish that I think you started, you guys created it. So talk to us about that time. Like, how did you even find out about NFTs? Was it even like a, a full on thing back then? Um, or what was the state of NFTs at the time? And, and how did you even decide like we're gonna we're gonna launch this project with these cute kittens and you know uh sell these as nfts <laughs> well i mean um like i was saying we we kind of so we wrote the first nft standard um we we i mean people might have used obviously non-fungible token people are probably using the computer science context people may have used the word non-fungible token in a blockchain context i i, I have looked it up but, but we kind of, um, we were looking at the problem more from the lens of, you know, how do you represent digital ownership um, on a blockchain? Um, well, you can do that really easily for a currency. There were thousands at that point. Um, but, but no one had done it in a, in a sort of, you know, no one even really tried to do it for anything other than a currency. There had been CryptoPunks, um, but they were, they, they didn't have a standard around them. It was, they were sort of a, uh, one-off asset at, at the time um, and you know things like rare pet pay cards on uh, counterparty um, uh, and, but but so nobody had really kind of tried to think well wh- how do we think about it as an asset class um, and and sort of define rules for it um, and so that's what we first started doing and when we first started working on the standard I mean we were thinking about in-game assets of course um, but but we didn't come up with the idea for crypto kitties until um, and by the way, the standard applies to everything, right? Like, uh, art, in-game assets, um, insurance contracts, um, uh, you know, physical items, uh, real estate deeds, anything that is non-fungible and needs to be represented as a uh, digital asset. Um, 
But we, we realized that, look, if we want to build, you know, no one pays attention to standards. So let's build a product to kind of demonstrate it. Um, and obviously we can't build a product about real estate deeds. It'll take us forever to get, you know, legal approvals and, you know, big partners to work with us. And, and we actually went down that road, um, but decided to, to kind of build something simple, something that is our own IP. Um, you know, what better place to start than digital cats? Because, you know, internet, internet always starts with digital cats. Um, and so let's say, let's put cats on the blockchain and then what do we make them do? Well, let's make them breed. Um, and so they breed and they make, they lay eggs and those eggs lead to new crypto kitties. Um, and so we, we only ever released, um, 41,000, uh, crypto kitties. The other 2 million have been bred by players, um, over, over the last little while. So until Top Shot, crypto kitties was the most successful NFT product, um, with about a hundred thousand, um, uh, owners or so. So, Roham, can you explain what it was or what it is, you know, how people bought it, what it did? Because I know a lot of people that are probably listening to this podcast thinking, what the hell are CryptoKitties, right? I mean, Pat and I know it because we follow a bunch of different things across many different, you know, categories of life and business. But for just the general person that goes to work, does their job, goes home, feeds their family and does it all over again, they might not be as familiar with crypto in general or Let's put, take it one step further now, NFTs. So do you mind just kind of in layman's terms explaining and giving us an overview of what CryptoKitties are? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, but I think in layman's terms, the easiest way to understand it is to think about them in comparison to in-game assets because everybody understands, you know, $100 billion a year is spent on in-game assets, right? Things that right. are digital, but, but that live inside games. Now, the only difference between, you know, a, a, let's say a Fortnite skin and a CryptoKitty is that a CryptoKitty you can take with you um, outside of CryptoKitties. And, you know, there, there uh, are a number of uh, marketplaces, a number of, um, you know, lending services, collateralization. You can break a kitty up into a million different little pieces and, and list them on, a, on an exchange. And all of these products are built by different people. Um, I think kitty races might still be live. There used to be a way, a uh, product for dressing up your kitty. Um, basically, your your sort of in-game item is mobile, so it can move around, is portable. Um, and the other difference between a NFT and an in-game item is that you can sell it, and it has real monetary value. Um, we just had, I mean, just a f- couple weeks ago, there were, I think, $8 million or so of crypto kitties traded in a single day. Um, we have crypto kitties that are... Um, today changing hands for uh, five six hundred thousand dollars and these are because of their sort of collectability their desirability their rarity uh, and you know we can get into kind of the specifics of crypto keys but that's kind of the simplicity of nfts nfts are just uh, digital items in a sense the way they they should be and that when you buy something you can sell it you can take it with you anywhere you want Um, and then to a developer a NFT is a digital asset that you can build for without asking anybody's permission. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and so I guess, where do you see in the foreseeable future? Because obviously you guys have CryptoKitties and then you have TopShot, which you kind of alluded to, but that's kind of the one where, you know, you can essentially own like NBA, like a play, like a LeBron dunk or something could, can be like yours to own essentially, right? Is that right? I don't want to butcher this. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Greatest moments in NBA history. 
um, and people make yep. collections and you know the the but that that's kind of surface level for us top shot and uh, by the way we're doing the same thing with NFL we're doing the same thing with La Liga um, and with UFC it's for us it's about the future of fandom because the fans of the future want to uh, show off their show off their fandom they want to have skin in the game um, so they're putting money where their mouth is in, in a certain sense um, and then they're going to get rewarded for it you know we're sending. Uh, top shot collectors to to experiences that um, frankly are, are just once in a lifetime things that before top shot you know nobody could have access to yeah and so my i guess my question was going to be where where do you see the biggest use case in the foreseeable future like what is the thing that sort of tips you know is like the tipping point for nfts even though we're like we're kind of already getting to that point but i feel like we're still at the early adopter phase and and we're gonna you know I'm talking about like the early majority phase. Like, is it collectibles? Is it art, which I guess f- kind of falls under collect- collectibles? Is it something else? Like, wh- where's the biggest sort of area you see it really growing? Um, I think. Look, the the I, I I always like this thing. The future of life is non fungible. Um, I have a silly little talk I did in 2017 that I um, that was the title, and um, and, and I mean it because. Everything in life is non-fungible other than your money. And, you know, if you're a commodities trader, your commodities, um, everything you, else you do is non-fungible. It's unique and it's unique to you. It's personalized. And so eventually some, an NFT is just a, uh, it's like a file format, right? It's a, it's a technology, it's a standard. And so it, it, it will apply to almost everything. Now, what's going to be the early drivers of adoption? I think, Obviously, collectibles, sports, we're going to be, we're barely getting started with um, what we want to do in sports. Um, but we're also seeing, you know, when you mentioned art, I don't think art is about collectibles. Like, it's not the exact same thing. I think art is yeah. about supporting yeah. artists. And it's, I think of it almost like a decentralized Patreon or sort of Patreon the way it should be in the sense that it's you connecting with an artist, having stake in that artist, helping that artist um, grow. And then benefiting financially when they do well, um, that that's that's pretty incredible. So I think art is a big driver, but obviously art is somewhat of a you know I guess high end activity. Um, even though NFTs democratize it in a, in a in a big way, just like you know let's say Instagram democratizes um, photography. Um, the the and then gaming. I think gaming is absolutely massive. Obviously we're we're um, uh, big fans of you know what Axie is doing and you know onboarding millions of users. Um, Axie and Topshot are um, two of the two of the most adopted uh, NFT projects, um, and I think that you know gaming as a category is just barely getting started. Um, I heard from one of the world's largest VCs today that every single gaming pitch that they get is a NFT pitch now, um, and so what that means is there's just a backlog of you know, a thousand uh, or more qualified entrepreneurs um, coming to market with really interesting projects. And I can't wait to see them and, and support them. I wanted to play a little bit of devil's advocate here because for me, this is a lot about a learning experience. And re- really, that's kind of been the point of this podcast the last four years is to learn about what people are doing and how they got to that point, but also take away some actual, you know, facts and learnings from it to then go ahead and apply it to your life. But so, Rom, I'm somebody, you know, let's call it, you know, I'm in the real estate world. So what you were saying earlier was super interesting to me and it just kind of got my gears spinning. But take NFTs and combine it with 
the real estate, commercial real estate world, etc. What is the practical, the pragmatic use of NFTs in that world? Perhaps it's not being done yet, but what what can people do? You know, when you buy a house, you can physically live in it. If you buy a digital version of a house, you can't necessarily live in that house. But what can you do with that digital house, that digital real estate, that will make it interesting for the regular consumer or investors, etc.? Um. Well, look, I I think that. The word NFT today is synonymous with collectible for most people. And in a collectability sense, there's not much that a digital version of a piece of commercial real estate. I mean, it, I guess it depends on the piece of commercial real estate, but that, that's sort of your answer. Like it's a, what, what generates love or hate is collectible. What generates like or indifference is, is, is not collectible. And so, so that's, that's sort of, you know, I guess one answer, but I think that's the short, that's the short-sighted answer. The, the real right. answer is I think. And I'm, and I'm thinking, by the way, I was thinking beyond just collectible, like what, cause I have ideas in my head of what I think pragmatically can work and how an NFT is useful in that specific space. Just, just an example. But I'm curious from somebody that's been doing this for, you know, years now, what that actually looks like. Well, look, there's two defining characteristics of an NFT. It is open for the user and it is open for a developer. And so the kinds of things that an NFT is useful for is when having access to a fully transparent, um, fully global market or, you know, an unlimited number of fully transparent, fully global markets with complete transparency, you know, at, at every single step of the way, um, you know, that when that is useful, then, then um, an NFT might be helpful. And so I guess NFT is a sort of, as long as you have trusted bridges between the physical and the digital, um, then NFT is kind of MLS out of the box, right? And, and it's MLS in a way that no one has to maintain it. It just, it just exists and everyone can use it. There's no central party. There's no budget. There's no uh, maintenance fee. There's no consultants. There's no auditors. Um, and then for developers, it means that they can build on that data, that, that state is the real word for it, although... It's a hard word to define. Developers can build for, for that state without asking for anybody's permission, without paying anybody, and without anybody being able to block, censor, or subvert their access. And what that means is they can build any kind of application um, on top of that data, allow any kind of transactional ability, right? Because that user um, has the ability to pay any amount of money with just one click. They don't need any middleman. They don't need a banker to approve a million-dollar transaction unless they've sort of asked for it. Um, and so you can have basically the, the same level of um, kind of that idea of an app for everything that is now on the iPhone. Um, you can have it for everything, but without the iPhone, without uh, the app store, without a 30% tax, without an, a re review and approval process, um, you just kind of have that out of the box. That's sort of the, the, the long term. Um, but of course, today, there's no community of, you know, a million developers building commercial real estate apps. Um, on top of commercial real estate NFTs. So that's why, you know, we're building cats and basketball cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, obviously it's still kind of so, it's still so early and it, it is a little bit of a wild, wild west. And um, with that comes, you know, uh, I mean, there's so many incredible, incredible like NFT projects that are happening. And, you know, if, if, if whoever's listening doesn't know what's happening, like go search it and I'm sure you'll see. But th then, then sometimes you, you'll read, articles about 
you know, this scam or that scam and this, this person got screwed over or that group got screwed over. And so from your, I guess your opinion, like how should people be going about this? If, for, if they're just hearing about NFTs for the first time, if they're, you know, interested in seeing what it is, they want to get into the game, they want to get their own NFTs. Um, how, how should they go about it? So they're like, you know, at least a little bit careful, um, to, to not get scammed about by, by anything or, you know, make sure that it's like a legit project. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think the the easy first answer is go to nbatopshot.com. With $9, you can have three NFTs. Um, and, <laughs> and you can put in a credit card, and there's no there's no complications. There's no um, browser extensions or, or gas or scams or anything. So, so that's probably yeah. – that, that's sort of the easiest answer. There's, you know, a couple dozen uh, apps that are that easy and sort of that out of, you know, plug and play. Um, and then there's kind of the wild, the quote unquote wild west, right? Where you sort of wear your um, suit and, and, and you wear your helmet and, and you kind of go outside. And on Ethereum, that's basically MetaMask, which kind of gives you access to the Ethereum non-custodial ecosystem. On Flow, that role is played by Blockto, which is, um, you know, in my opinion, a little easier to use. You don't need a browser extension. Um, you can just use your email, um, but you're, you're still in control of your keys, um, and you can explore any kind of sort of quote unquote non-custodial asset, but there that's the problem. You're running the risk that anytime you sign a transaction, unless you're going to sit there auditing the code, um, that that you're you're sort of taking a risk. Now, of course, you can go to only trusted websites, and you know, Blockto tries to find scams, MetaMask tries to find scams, um, but that's 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 sort of the problem, right? And you know, we have so so in on kind of the in the flow universe, you're gonna have apps where you can log into with your Dapper wallet, which is the wallet you get on NBATopshow.com. That'll include NFL, that'll include UFC, La Liga, whatever. It'll also include Genius. It'll also include a number of third-party marketplaces, um, things like OpenSea. I mean, hopefully, OpenSea one day when they come to flow. Um, but that'll be sort of your trusted universe. Anything you buy with a uh, Dapper wallet. Um, I mean, we don't have insurance today, but you can imagine us offering uh, insurance, basically saying this is this is sort of the safe zone. Um, and then when you kind of explore outside of your Dapper wallet, my advice would be just start with a little bit of money, but and have multiple wallets. Kind of, you know, that's what everybody does. You know, when you hear number of active wallets, everybody has multiple wallets because that's the safe thing to do. Um, you know, and if you end up having real amounts of capital, you know, money that you would be upset about losing, you know, make sure you understand um, sort of the the, uh, the details that come with, you know, self-custody, right? You're going to want a hardware wallet. Um, you're going to want to pay a lot of attention to, you know, who has your uh, recovery codes, what happens in case um, you're unreachable and, and all of these things. It starts getting complicated. So um, we believe most people will want to stay within that sort of Dapper wallet universe. Um, and eventually there are ways where they can get their keys back um, and sort of control them and become power users. Um, but but there's a little bit of sort of hand-holding and we got to keep the users safe. That's the only way I think the technology is going to progress. Yeah, I agree. Rom, just switching gears for a second to you as a founder, at the end of the day, you know, this space, even though, you know, a, a file has been around for a long time now, but this kind of, branding of of the nft and the nft world is more recent as a founder in such an early um industry let's call it 
uh, how do you stay focused? Because I can imagine, you know, myself in an industry where it's just like, like Pat was saying earlier, the wild, wild west and like everything that you do can be a new idea, a new program, a new product. I would probably lose focus. I'd be like, I, I want to do this. I want to do that. I could do this. I could do that. How do you get yourself to just say, I'm just sticking to this? Or are you the way that I would be? <laughs> I definitely like new ideas. Um, but I think it's really important to be honest with yourself about what's what sort of um, post-product market fit, as in what's reality, and you have data, and you have um, you have momentum, and you have to treat that as, as as your number one priority, and you have to treat that as um, the an overriding priority. It's not even a hey that gets X percent of my time. That gets hundred percent of my time, hundred ten percent of my time, if, if it needs it. Um, but then I think that is really important to have sort of your pulse on everything that's sort of um, breaking out in other sort of adjacent industries in, um, in, in things that are maybe uh, potentially coming closer to your core business or, um, or going to be affecting kind of the underlying uh, platform in some way. And the way I like doing that is investing and backing entrepreneurs that I believe in, um, whether it's through, I mean, usually it's just investment. Um, I mean, more recently, it's been through acquisition. We, we just acquired, um, we announced the acquisition of um, Brud and, and, you know, Trevor, Nicole, Kara, that, that whole team and, and what they're focused on with Dows and Lil Michaela. That's something that none of us at Dapper Labs um, have the time to be focused on, but they're going to focus on it. Um, and, and, you know, we, we have shared alignment, we share values, um, and, and we're, we, share it, we share a common goal of saying, you know, let's put uh, blockchain wallets in as many pockets as possible because these are the gateways to an open future. Um, and so that's kind of, that would be my answer is we, we, we make sure that each team is hyper-focused and we make sure that we understand, hey, look, this is, um, this is post-product market fit, um, but this other thing here is a really important experiment and we need to, um, we need to, uh, uh, we need to make sure we're learning as much as possible. Right. Obviously, NFTs, I mean, if you're on Twitter, you, you read these stories all the time of, of how kind of life changing they could be, right? From so many different ways, like monetarily, but also like from a, you, I mean, from like just a fulfillment standpoint, whether you're launching one or what have you. And so I guess based on, I mean, being in the space for all these years and, and obviously seeing this, all this growth recently, are there any stories that you've kind of come across that kind of stood out to you? It could be Dapper specific or just in general. I mean, there have been a, a lot of amazing stories. My, my favorite ones are how NFTs have brought, you know, families together. And it's, it's you know, people are opening packs with their kids. People are, um, uh, especially, I mean, now there's the Dr. Seuss app that is, uh, uh, that is just perfect for people with especially young children. Um, but NBA Top Shot, I mean, it's gotten families going to sports games and, and, and keeping track of getting back into rivalries even. And, and those are my... Um, those are my favorite stories. Um, my probably second favorite stories are, are kind of athlete and um, athlete fan uh, kind of just just uh, crossovers. And you know, H Harrison Barnes, for example, he sent um, some signed jerseys to um, one of his fans that just went crazy collecting his top shots, not expecting anything, um, and, and just went out of his way and and you know made made someone's uh, day or made you know it's kind of a 
once in a lifetime feeling really. Um, you know, the players that go out of their way to kind of jump on uh, live streams and, and, and just, you know, talk about Top Sean and hearing them get excited about th seeing their moments um, is, is kind of, I mean, that, that's, that, that, that's, that tells us we've designed the right product. Um, so those are, those are some of my favorite, um, favorite stories. And we're starting to do a lot more kind of in-person events as more, um, as the borders are opening up and, and just bringing people together. It's, it's kind of, they're sharing more uh, of their top shot stories and, and, and they're kind of creating, um, they're creating friendships, which is uh, really, really cool to see. So Rohan, one thing I've been thinking about for the last, you know, whatever, it's been 18 months plus at this point since this damn pandemic started. Uh, and from my world, from a professional sense, and just personally from what I've seen, there seems to be a lot more capital floating around, right? Whether it's, you know, these insane, um, you know, venture capital deals that you see, whether it's investments in, you know, commercial real estate, whether it's folks buying homes at ridiculously high prices, right? There seems to be a lot of money out there. And, you know, like Pat said, it's, you know, NFTs are all over Twitter, crypto, you know, you've, you've seen the prices of, you know, all these cryptocurrencies um, go up as well. Um, is this just a trend? Is it just something that will eventually pass? I mean, some of these crypto price, excuse me, some of these NFT prices that we've seen in the last few months, I mean, they're in the millions and hundreds of thousands. Is that just the beginning? Is that going to be the baseline? Or was it just one of those pops and then we'll just kind of see it decline? What have you seen on your end? I mean, I can't, I can't really comment on uh, specific price movement of, of specific things. And I'm more of a builder, not a trader. So I wouldn't take my, um, my advice calling bottoms or, or tops um, uh, either way. Um, look, I mean, one of the important things to also think about is just what are you pricing things relative to? And, and when it's relative to the U.S. dollar, and everything has gone up in price, um, then maybe it's more important to look at price differences relative to, to each other. Um, and if you do that, then obviously certain NFTs still look completely out of whack. I mean, personally, I think the community of today is placing a high amount of sort of mimetic value on, um, mm -hmm. on, on provenance, if you want if, if to think about it that way. Like there's a small group of people that care a lot about Oh, this was the first, you know, rock on Ethereum, or or, or what what, uh, and um, and I think that you know that that's interesting, um, but but um, and, and look, like you don't need a the, at the end of the day as an NFT, you need two buyers um, to establish a price for something because only one person can have it, and so when you have ultra rare items, I, I have no ability to judge, you know, what's the right. Uh, price for for one thing versus the other that that's that's a really important kind of you know concept to sort of uh, internalize is if people don't want to sell then the price is infinity right um yeah and so and so so that so that there's that on the one hand um and then on the other hand there's a we're scratching the surface in terms of the number of people involved in nfts it is still tiny like i say you know there's, there's about a million dapper wallet uh users is about five hundred thousand sort of paid users um, 560,000. Um, and then, you know, we, we talk about kind of a couple hundred thousand monthly active wallets on, on a marketplace, you know, the biggest marketplace, OpenSea. 
Um, but how many of those wallets, how many people have multiple wallets? Well, you know, almost everybody. Um, how many people have dozens or hundreds of wallets? You know, I don't know. But but kind of you do the math and that's not a lot of people. And so the the market itself is just barely getting started. And, um, you know, most of us that have been here for years are, you know, are here because we believe in it. And, you know, they're, they're, if, if people were rushing to sell once prices went up, they would have done so. And so kind of that, that kind of brings me back to my point is, you know, an NFT, if there's two buyers for it, that that's kind of what the price ends up being. Um, and so it's important to think about, I guess, rarity and, and scarcity and, and, you know, whether it's top shot and, you know, for example, on flow, a lot of these NFTs that are coming out are, are, you know, smaller projects. They are one of ones. They are one of tens, uh, you know, literally 10 pieces. Um, and so, right. and, you know, most of them are being bought by people who would never have an intention to sell. Um, and that's just an important concept to think about. Rom, one thing that I have been also tracking is kind of the environmental impact of, um, cryptocurrencies and you know whether it's bitcoin ethereum etc in general and i don't know how true this statement i'm about to make is but i was reading somewhere and heard from somebody else recently that bitcoin mining is already taking up about one percent of uh the entire united states energy consumption which one percent is a low number but you know that's also a very big number uh when you think about the amount of energy that is being used by um you know, mining cryptocurrencies. And I know Ethereum requires a lot of uh, electricity, which obviously is a form of energy. What is the industry in general doing about those things to make it a lot more sustainable? Because I know that with a lot of success, eventually comes, you know, challenges, right? People start pointing out all of the flaws and the things that are not good about a certain category or industry. So, uh, I guess more for just general knowledge, what is being done uh, about that? Yeah, look, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, f for one thing, probably the most important thing is that to acknowledge like environmental concerns are super important. And, um, you know, I think, I think climate change is a, is, is a real thing. So, you know, we have to kind of be, be conscious about uh, it at every step. And, you know, when it comes to blockchains like flow, uh, the environmental impact is minuscule. It's something like a hundred thousand times uh, less than sort of the previous generation, which includes Bitcoin and, and of course, um, basically all of what we call sort of proof of work blockchains are incredibly um, energy intensive because they they are they require you know the the burning of energy to establish that that sort of concept of decentralization and trust. Um, and then the next generation beyond proof of work is what's called proof of stake. Uh, Flow fits into this. A lot of the uh, other kind of uh, uh, blockchains also fit into this. But Flow in particular um, is designed to be you know, the greenest possible architecture um, because it is it it is uh, it basically segregates the hardest work to um, computers that are operated by uh, companies like Google, like Samsung, like. Um, as well as some, some individuals, but these are basically uh, uh, machines designed for efficiency, um, but they have no decision-making power. They have, they're basically kind of workhorses, um, but they work for a decentralized group of a uh, much larger group of computers that are all very small, very efficient, that can run on home um, you know, internet connections, home uh, hardware, um, home electricity, 
And so you don't have this idea of giant inefficient um, server farms or you know, everybody competing with each other for, uh, for electricity. The whole network takes 0 0.9 uh, gigawatt hours uh, or, or, or uh, consumes 0 0.9 gigawatt hours per year. Um, and mm -hmm. so, so, you know, that's about 90, 90 100,000 times um, uh, more efficient according to, according to our calculations. So, I mean, what I'm saying is it's, it's not a, you know, we've got to acknowledge the problem, but it is um, on its uh, way to be solved. That's great. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting space in general because, you know, I mean, we talked about NFTs about, you know, how there's builders and developers and then there's like the consumers and the folks who like want to own these assets. And then there are the traders who don't really care about either. They just kind of want to, you know, make money on it, which it's, it's an interesting, like, it's an interesting dynamic. And so as a builder, like you mentioned, you're, you know, you're sort of mainly focused on that. Um, in general, whether, when it comes to technology, I mean, you're definitely someone who, you know, definitely are on, on the forefront of that. But what advice would you give to people that are just interested in building in tech and building in whether it's crypto or whatever? Like, how do you stay on top of trends and, and what's coming? Like, do you recommend people? Is it like just going on Twitter all day and seeing what people are talking about? Uh, you know, is, where, where does all this come from, at least for you? So, so here's the thing. The, the problem is that the people who have the time, the, the people who are building the most, and so, you know, they're, they're sort of really looking under the hood, um, are usually very, very busy. And so they don't end up being the ones that are tweeting the most. Um, yeah. and, and certainly, like, the how-to guides and the YouTube videos, you know, it's, it's just not mature enough yet where there's sort of playbooks for any of this stuff. So I would say the best, the best thing to do is... It, is, I mean, the absolute best thing is just jump in yourself. Um, and then the second best thing is to talk to people that are building um, and, um, and and sort of, you know, and well, as you're building, ask people questions. Don't just rely on what's public because what's public is, is, is really what's scratching the surface of um, what people are working on. I mean, we've launched one product out of every 10 that we've even sort of ideated on. I mean, this is kind of back on the Ethereum days, but we've learned a lot over the years and, you know, it's it's knowledge that nobody at our organization has had time to even write up internally, much less write up externally. Um, and so, you know, it's just really important to to jump in. And you know, if you go to docs.onflow.org, um, that's sort of our attempt at saying, hey, this is the right way to onboard to two blockchains, and you know, this is how you understand, um, you know, accounts and 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 you know, transaction fees, and you know, how you think about ownership and at every level. And so. Um, I think I think Flow is a very um, easy blockchain to onboard to because it's sort of built from a perspective of a developer. And you know, we're hiring we're not hiring crypto people. We're hiring people from you know Facebook and, and Amazon and um, and and sort of the the as well as kind of gaming companies. Um, and they're understanding sort of how to get started because we don't we don't start with hey this is how you know the security proofs work. Um, all of that's a little bit under the hood. We try to kind of start with Hey, this is what the customer needs, and this is how you how you deliver it a little bit better. So, um, docs.onflow.org is is where I would point folks to. Rom, there's something that I've been dying to ask you because, <laughs> I, I mean, your background is very similar to ours in the sense that you come from immigrant parents. And if I were to tell my parents and my close friends and family that I were to start a company in the NFT space and try to explain it to them, they would think that I'm out of my fucking mind, right? 
So I'm just curious, what a year, because they won't understand, you know, what it really is. But I'm curious, what has been the feedback that you've gotten from your family, your parents, your close friends, when you first jumped into the space and even now? Well, I mean, look, the, the I, I did start, when we started Axiom Zen, it wasn't the same sort of high risk, you know, let's bet everything on, uh, you know, on, on, on sort of one idea. Um, Axiom Zen was all about the perspective of uh, let's explore multiple areas, let's explore multiple products, let's build a team iteratively where we take multiple swings. Um, we spun out a company, the, our first company we spun out was in 2015, Routific. Um, that's went on to raise outside money. It's just profitable. Our second company was Zenhub, same thing, outside money, profitable. And so by the time we started playing around with CryptoKitties, you know, the company had cash in the bank. It had, um, kind of a, 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 you know, it had revenue coming in the door. Um, you know, we had made tens of millions of dollars of revenue at that point. Um, and so we kind of have had that security of sort of trying to work on extreme, uh, extremely speculative, let's say, um, ideas. And so, you know, I mean, I, I didn't really tell anybody about it. Um, the, the, the big question came in when, you know, I left Axiom Zen and I said, well, I'm leaving all of that behind, um, to focus on the Apple labs. And then, you know, crypto crashed a few months after that. And, and here I was three years later, still talking about NFTs. That's when people started really asking me if I felt okay. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and, you know, they saw, Hey, we have our whole team cranking, nonstop that whole time over 100 people um and and everyone was like hey are you guys still working on that nft thing um and you know right up to right up to the top shot launch everybody thought we were crazy yeah um another company is called axiom zen and I, I don't know how much like zen you practice or like how much meditation you do but i have a pretty zen question uh fast forwarding like I want to say 10 years, but there's so much happening every single day where maybe Ten could months. Say, yeah, no, <laughs> five years, uh, looking, looking forward, you know, and at that time, looking back, like what would, what needs to happen for you to be like, you know what, like this, I, I did, I did my job. Like I did everything I wanted to do. Like, this is where I, you know, I wanted it to be. And, and we, we made it happen. Like, what does, what does it need to look like? What do you want to accomplish? Um, well, I mean, I think every I think every digital asset of value um, will eventually be an NFT. So, so I don't know if I'd be disappointed if that doesn't happen. I mean, l l like like you, I try to be zen and and, and pretty uh, um, you know pretty happy most of the time. But um, that's I think what will happen. I mean, I think that you know we like I said, this is sort of a foundational technology. It kind of unlocks um, benefits for both the developer. And the user, and by the way, the only benefit of the developer, like the, the reason it's cool for a developer to have open access, is because just more choice for the user. So, um, so I think that I think that that'll you know, digital life will be will be non fungible, and I think it'll happen on uh, Flow, um, and I think that that'll mean more openness for for everybody. It'll mean you know, you buy something on a certain website, you can bring it into your Facebook and your Instagram. Um, and, and, you know, that the, the communities across both can sort of interact and it'll start sort of breaking down a little bit. Well, I guess Facebook, Instagram, same company as Instagram and Snapchat. Uh, yeah. That way. Um, yeah. but, but, you know, so I think the world's biggest companies will, will adopt it. And then I think new IPs will be born from it. And that, that's really exciting. And, you know, maybe a little Michaela and crypto kitties are sort of, you know, the, 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 
the starting point, but I think it's so exciting to think about, well, you know, who else is starting right now and, and starting out their entrepreneurial journey where, you know, decentralized systems and crypto and direct payments and full ownership and, and, and all this stuff is the only thing they know. They've never grown up in the world of copyrights and trademarks and uh, licensing and, you know, multi-decade um, uh, sort of brand building and stuff like that. It's really about community building. And, and I think you're, you're sort of starting to see it and, and you know, on flow with things like hoodlums. Um, on Ethereum with things like Board Ape Club, um, and it's really exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. Um, I, I, I think we're all good, man. This has been a really great conversation. Uh, I mean, learned a lot, and I think I hope people listening did too. And uh, you know, it's definitely a space that you know we're, we're keeping an eye on. Obviously, it's it's super exciting, and it's going to be interesting to see like all the things that un unlocks, even from a physical world perspective, because I think there's so much there too. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we can't thank you enough for, for hanging out with us and sharing your story and all, all of your insight and wisdom and uh, best of luck with everything you're working on. And we'll be uh, we'll be rooting for you. Thanks, Raham. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you for having me.